Welcome, everybody, to episode 30 of The Hopeful Majority. There's a couple of reasons why this one's special. One is because you're probably off and enjoying the holiday season, and I hope you're having a wonderful, restful holiday season with family, with yourself, wherever you are in the world. Uh, the second reason why this one's a, an interesting one is because this is the last episode of the year. We started on June 6th. We started a show to build nuance, to fight outrage, and I thought, well, who better to end this year with than with an amazing podcaster, host, author, writer, journalist. Her name is Kelly Corrigan, who you've probably heard of. If you haven't, you should definitely pick up her book, Tell Me More, which is a fascinating expose on how to approach the world. And I thought, you know, for the last episode of a show that's focused on honest conversations with people that are really interesting, where I'm just asking them questions and trying to get to the complexity of who we are as people, rather than have this conversation focus on politics, have it focus on current events, have it focus on what's happening with President Trump, President Biden, let's just talk about humanity. Like, let's just have this conversation focus on who is Kelly? What is her life experience like? We navigate and meander through conversations about death, about grievance, about grief, about happiness, about curiosity, about wondering, about youth. This is a conversation that I think spans so many different arenas of who we are as people. And I think the reason why it's particularly in introspective, effective, and I think useful is because, frankly, we live at a moment that is incredibly uncertain. And in a moment that is so uncertain, with so much happening in our politics, with so much fog and density in terms of how we approach the world, think about the world, I thought, I think we need some clarity. And I think we need to be curious. And I thought, well, let's have a conversation where we model that. Not only do we model that curiosity, but we go into the depths of life because life is so much more than what we see on the media, what we see on social media. It is so much more complex. It is so hard to reduce down to. And and also we live at this time where we just don't talk about suffering. We don't talk about the fact that a lot of us are going through a lot of challenges. And instead we we have these hyper partisan political conversations that all focus on what's going on in our news. And we forget that most people in our country also have real stories, have real valid opinions, have political disagreements, want to live in a world where we can just hear each other, see each other. And so I thought I'd have this conversation with Kelly. And importantly, for all those people that are new, for all those people that are returning, as you know, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, that's where you catch the hopeful majority. Usually we have a monologue. And yet I think that was a long enough intro because I wanted you to really understand the importance, magnitude and purpose of this conversation. I am so grateful to all of you for listening, for joining. Importantly, let's get into this conversation with Kelly Corrigan. Kelly Corrigan, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So it, it turns out that this is actually the the last episode of 2023. No pressure. No pressure. No, no pressure. And no. and and you've graced us with, with your time. And let me just say that when we started this journey about six, six and a half months ago in June, uh, I had no idea that we would still be recording this conversation with some amazing people. And we've interviewed and had conversations with everybody from like presidential candidates to political figures, to intellectuals, to journalists. And when I thought about introducing you, there was like so many different labels that came to mind. I was like, should I say author? Should I say journalist? Should I say podcaster? Um, do I say intellectual? Because you've done so many things. So how would you describe yourself? 
You know, I, I often just get right to the point. I say I write books, I have a podcast, and I have a TV show on PBS. Uh, but really, the the sort of organizing principle of my life is I'm curious. So I the podcast is called Kelly Corrigan Wonders, because that's what I feel like I do all the time, is wonder about something and then sort of devise a way to do a little research into it and to make all of that work um, professional so that I can share it, but also so that I can keep doing it because really this is what I like to do. I like to research. I like to read up on people. I like to try to connect ideas across conversations. I love meeting people. I love getting to sit in on conversations. So yeah, I've, I've backwards designed a life that allows me to do the thing I like to do the most, which is learn. So you described the the title as as Kelly Corrigan wonders, and of all the different like adjectives that you could be thinking about in processes, uh, why is it that learning and curiosity are what speak to you the most of all the different things? I mean, it's a verb, right? It's like to wonder. And it's a noun, like a wonder, like a thing can be a wonder. Um, the, the, it's a very youthful state of mind, I find. So uh, almost almost at all times, you're deciding whether you're going to be a teacher or a, or a student. Hmm. And I, I like being in that second position more. But it is true that the way I learn is to restate. So often when I'm reading a book and my husband will come home, I'll say, I had to tell you this and I'll teach him something from the day's reading because it is the way that I make it mine. And so in some ways, the thing I do professionally is utterly self-centered because nothing could help me hold on to what I'm learning more than to be required to discuss it or explain it to another person or to an audience. So you described it as a youthful state of mind. And one thing that I can certainly state, and when we were just uh, doing your podcast, is I remember we were driving back from a conference and it was a very coincidental drive and we were sitting there and one of the things that I, the one of the thoughts I could not get rid of, and the other person that I actually felt this a lot with was, was Andrew Yang when he was speaking with me, is like you and Andrew Yang. The one commonality that I've seen is that you both are like people, but not. I don't mean that in a, in a in a. I mean that in an accomplishment standpoint. Is when I talk to you, when I hear you, yes, there's youthfulness. Yes, there's that energy, and there's that authenticity. And one of the curiosities I have as we like wrap out the year is how do you hold on to that sense of authenticity despite all of that that you've got going on? You've got a PBS show. You've got a podcast. How do you stay you? How do you stay youthful? It's funny. I only think about it consciously when I'm doing the um, intros and outros on the podcast because the podcast is also played on some big NPR stations. And sometimes I hear myself putting on like radio voice where I'll be like, hi, I'm Kelly Corrigan and this is Kelly Corrigan Wonders. And then I say into the mic because it's going straight to Tammy, my producer, I'll say, oh my God, scratch that. I sound like a total weenie. Like I got to sound like myself. 
And so I have mm -hmm. to visualize a person and I say, hi, I'm Kelly Corrigan and this is Kelly Corrigan Wonders. And that's the only time that I feel myself sliding into a role or, um, you know, trying to sound like a professional mm. rather than sound like myself. I had a good role model. I had two good role models of people that were pretty consistently themselves situation by situation, like both my parents are total characters, completely different, but they don't change that much um, environment by environment or occasion by occasion. Like my dad's the same guy at work as he is at the gas station with Pete, the proprietor that he loves, as he is at the deli counter with Marissa, the girl who slices his roast beef nice and thin the way he likes it, uh -huh. as he is with his lacrosse team that he coached until the day he died, mm. you know, and so seeing that made it seem like that's, that's sort of a totally conceivable way to go through life is just to be yourself all the time and, and mm. not shift into these more official postures. And I, and it's worked, you know, it's, it's worked out. I mean, a lot of times when I do readings from my books, people say, oh my God, you talk just like you write. Hmm. And in fact, it's a very conscious thing, which is to say that when I'm writing, I'll often read it out loud. And if it sounds overblown or too flowery, I'll cut it or I'll change hmm. it or I'll bring it back down to earth. And I think it's a, I mean, I've been inspired by people like Anne Lamott. That was like a really uh, early read for me in my 20s. And I thought, oh my God, like this is a book. Like you can do it like this. You don't have to go up three notches and try to sound like Dickens. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden, like things seem possible to me that didn't seem possible before. And so imitation, like if I were to be imitating Terry Gross, or imitating, I don't know, Charlie Rose or someone on the Today Show with the PBS stuff. Um, it would be uncomfortable. It would be anxiety provoking. It would, I think, be really awkward. Mm. And so I've just taken the note from my parents that you can just pretty much do you the way you do you, no matter where you are, no matter who you're talking to. So this is definitely not the direction that I was thinking of taking the conversation to, but the word that keeps coming to mind right now when you're talking is the word performance. It's all about oh, performance. Yeah, totally and, totally. and like and like for some reason we live in this this performative culture where all you're doing constantly is trying to create an aura or image of yourself so that it's either more profitable, more sellable, you name it. Um and you when, know, in my in my yeah. little corner of the world the, the two most performative things that people do are they perform vulnerability and they perform authenticity. Like those two words are everywhere. And it seems like that's what the culture right now values most. And therefore you have people getting on stage and saying how nervous they are or uh -huh. Going on a podcast and saying, I've never thought of that before. And you're like, but of course, of course, you're not nervous. <laughs> you've been on stages for like 15 years now. And of, of course, you've thought of that before. You've been talking about human flourishing for 25 years. Like, or 
the most egregious example is when podcast hosts who you know their body of work and you know their areas of interest, someone will say something fairly banal and well-known on their pod and they'll say, oh, slow down. How profound. Say that again. And it's like, really? Like, I think I've heard that exact statement on your podcast before. So mm -hmm. like, why do you, what is this urge to inhabit these two super desirable modes of being the vulnerable person who's always telling you about how they've screw everything up, but who's obviously like enormously successful in multiple ways or the super authentic person who's like, I didn't brush my teeth today, you know? Uh, and it's like, you probably did like, <laughs> it's okay. Like that's not even what those words mean anyway, actually. Uh, like that's like the cheapest, most superficial version of those two mind states or emotional positions. Hmm. You know, that's not what that really means. Well, in the in the spirit of authenticity, you can still hear me, right? Yeah, because yes, we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna cut that out. And, no. and it actually, I'll tell you when you were talking to me about performance and how people perform authenticity. I, I couldn't help thinking of myself in some ways. You know, I, I, I'll be honest, like doing the work that I now do with young people it, it, and just politicians and all the other folks is in some ways you become really good at yes. quote unquote relating to people. You yes. become really good at uh, just, you know, pretending to be something in some ways, you know, saying things like you've got those canned lines of I've never heard of that before or I, you know, think about it in that way, or I'm nervous in that way, because you almost know that the audience that's never heard you before is going to say, well, that rings true. And one of the areas where that shows up on this podcast a lot is we do these Instagram reels, right? Where we'll, we'll basically take this, we'll clip a quick 30 second because it's got to get traction. It's got to get traction. Right. And I'll be honest, sometimes I'm thinking, I'm making notes. I'm like, Ooh, maybe if I ask a question <laughs> this way, <laughs> Kelly's going to say this thing. And then and I it'll make it good real. I'll say Kelly Corrigan goes viral about President okay. Trump or President Biden. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you think about it in the context of our discourse, what do you think are like the incentive structures that drive that for, for people? You know, I wrote this book called Tell Me More, and it was these 10, yep. 10, 12 sentences that all adults need to be able to say to be in deep relationship with other people. And one of them was I was wrong, which I made a point of saying, I think it's very different than saying I'm sorry. I think I'm saying when you say I was wrong, you're saying you and I fundamentally agree on how things should be in the world. And I stepped out of that and I said something or did something that we fundamentally have decided already in the context of our relationship that that's out of bounds. So I'm saying I was wrong because I want to be back next to you looking at the world the way that we decide to look at it together. So it's like a realignment in a cool way. But the other thing that I fantasize about is political political candidates who can say, oh, I was so wrong. Hmm. You know, like the fog of war, Robert McNamara thing, which happened, you know, toward the end of his life. And he went on camera and talked about decisions around Vietnam in which he had deep regret. Or Obama has talked about gay marriage in this way that he had one opinion and he came around to a different opinion. Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the great intellectuals who's still alive today, 
will constantly say, I love changing my mind mm -hmm. because I learned something because I was in that great youthful position where everything was still alive in me, that I was still open to being changed. And that indicates like a certain vitality and intellectual vitality that God, you just hate to see that extinguished in a person. So I think, I think the culture, like I call it conviction addiction. Like, I, I think we love people and I, and I think it's really proven. Like, I think social science would back this up that overconfident people, people who talk loud, people who talk fast, people who talk well, get way more responsibility and decision-making um, control than the quieter person or the person who expresses some level of uncertainty. Hmm. But if you want to connect with people, then you have to be able to say, I don't really know. Like another sentence yeah. and tell me more is I don't know because nothing is more comforting than hearing the other person say, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, great. Cause neither do I, but I was up here acting like I was sure. And then that makes you act like you were sure. And then we're just giving it back and forth to each other. Like we're mm -hmm. ESPN commentators arguing over who's the better quarterback or we're CNN or Fox arguing about who's the better candidate. Hmm. But wouldn't it be nice? Like the movies that we love and the novels that we love are way more nuanced and tricky and characters, you know, like you learn as a young writer, that a flat character is much worse than a round character. And a round character resembles all of us much more fully in the sense that we have our contradictions and our inconsistencies and our hypocrisies. And that's really the more interesting parts of us. Hmm. The last the last conversation we had was with a filmmaker named Rob Feld. And one of the terms that we kept throwing around was the outrage industrial complex. And one of the oh, things that we I, I talk a lot about with with a lot of our guests is really what we're doing on the show is we're fighting outrage and trying to build nuance. In, in other ways, we're trying to fight the what you described, which, which are flat characters and and demonstrate the nuance and complexity and roundness of 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 who we are as people. But Outrage Man. is so energizing though. Like, oh yeah. Like you're, yeah. you're offering these different energy states where it's like, either you could be way up here and you're firing away and this is the tone of your voice and this is the pace of your speech and this is the energy behind every word. Or you're like way down here and you're like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like who wants that energy state? I want to be like moving and grooving and like firing on all cylinders it uh it's almost in some ways instinctual to say i know that even when i don't uh in in the conversation right before this hour for people's context kelly and i i have the privilege of spending it two hours in a row and <laughs> and and in these two hours the first hour we're recording on kelly's show and which we highly recommend you check out and in that conversation you brought up these two psychologists right and um, and, and I forgot their names, but John and Julie Gottman. Yep. John and Julie Gottman. And you asked, do you know them? And I'll tell you, my first instinct was, of course, I know them. I Absol know. Absolutely. Right, I know right. them. And then, and then I went, I don't want to look like the dummy who doesn't yeah, know them. I was like, I, I don't want to look like the dummy that doesn't know the two psychologists about the work I'm talking about. And yet I was like, oh my God, but what if Kelly asked me a follow-up question about them? And then I look like a total idiot on NPR. So I was like, no, no, no. Let me tell the truth. I don't know them. 
And there's a sense of like loss immediately. It's like, oh, I don't know. And then you're like, okay, well, let me tell you. <laughs> and and it, and it, that's vulnerability. Like like yeah. that's that's the actual vulnerability that I think made headlines. You know, I think that's that's the thing that we're seeking and that we're so drawn to mm. is people who have the courage to say, I don't know that much about that. Can you explain it? Like, think about what we're required to weigh in on, either in ballot initiatives or on social media. So like I voted in California for 29 years. We left um, a couple years ago. And on our ballot initiatives, it would be like, I don't know, how much square footage should a chicken have? And it was like, I don't think you should ask my opinion about that. That was um, a real question. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, you know, there were two sides and one was, yeah. I don't know. I was just like, that's, this is like insane. Why would you ask my opinion about that? I have no idea. And like to bring it one step closer, like I was diagnosed with breast cancer in my thirties. So my yeah. kids were one and two and I had a huge seven centimeter tumor in my breast. And the woman, when I finally got in to see the doctor, she said, how do you feel about breast preservation? Hmm. And I was like, I don't think I should get a vote here. Hmm. Like, I don't, I wouldn't know how to make that choice. I don't know how to do the cost benefit there. Here's my deal. I'm 36 and I have two babies in diapers. So I would like to live until I'm like 85. So whatever decision optimizes my chances to live till I'm 85, that's the one that you expert with decades of medical experience and clinical experience should make without my opinion. Hmm. And then the social media thing is just recently, someone wrote me in my social media and said, I cannot believe that you have not said something about Israel yet. Hmm. And I thought, I don't know. I don't think I know enough to say something about Israel. You know, like I called every Jewish friend and spent a day or two talking and learning from them and just checking in on them, really, and trying to understand how this feels to them. But I I'm, I shouldn't be speaking about that. But there is this expectation that all public figures, and I'm a tiny, tiny public figure, but like all people with a blue check mark are supposed to jump in and make a big statement. And and I think that... Hmm encouraging that is a mistake because I think it's so superficial. And I think in many cases, people are behaving as if they have a deep, sophisticated understanding of a very complex issue that they don't have. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot there. And right now my brain is going, ask about that, ask about that, yeah. ask about that. But I want to, I want to hold on the piece of of public figures having to make statements uh because I'll, I'll be honest in some ways that's actually one of the things that makes me nervous about the work that i'm doing because i don't actually necessarily know if i want that responsibility but put putting that aside for a second i actually want to go back to your piece about you know being diagnosed with breast cancer and i was actually going to ask you about that because you've written about it a lot too and and again, it goes to the the point of vulnerability, but it must take a lot to to put yourself out there publicly talking about this in a way um, that is quite open, quite honest. 
Uh, and and now getting to the point where you can just sort of say it without it almost becoming the centerpiece of a conversation. How, I guess, why did you put that story out there? And how have you sort of gone through the process of it being something that is quite publicly known? Okay, so this also keeps pointing us into these same two conversations about vulnerability and performative yeah. vulnerability and authenticity. So I'm going to give you a really authentic answer answer to this question. Sure. It did not feel vulnerable to me at all to tell that story. First of all, it was known by all people I cared about that I had breast cancer. I was not telling a secret hmm. because, you know, I was bald and I was in treatment for like two years. People were like putting food on my front step. It took forever to get rid of it. I'd have my ovaries out. I did a whole second year of chemotherapy. Like it was so all the people that were real to me were hmm. 3D in my life. I already knew the whole thing anyway. And of all the stories that you could tell, like it's an enormously sympathetic story. It's not like telling a story about a fight with Edward where I was really out of control hmm. and I and I behaved poorly. Like that would be a vulnerable thing to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what, telling a story in which you look ugly or hypocritical or bitchy is very different than telling a story where you're like this sweet mom of these two kids and you're in chemotherapy at the same time. Like who's not rooting for that person? Everybody is. Mm -hmm. Like I think about people who talk about mental health mm -hmm. and at the same time that I was going through what I was going through, a great friend of mine's husband was deeply depressed, deeply, mm -hmm. like had to leave work, had to do, um, can't remember what the treatment is called, but he had to go to a place for 30 days. And, yeah. um, and, you know, talking about that openly would be, I would, I would say very vulnerable. Hmm. Now here's the super authentic answer to this. My whole life, I wanted to be a writer. Hmm. I was an English major. I have a master's in English lit. I love reading. I love story. I love language. And I love my dad. So what really happened is that my dad got cancer at the same time I got cancer. And so I totally used my cancer thing as a hook to write the book I always wanted to write anyway, which was, wow. this is my dad and I'm nuts about him and I wanna tell you why. Hmm. So that's how it came about. And frankly, many people on the buying side of the book said, Nobody wants to read a book about cancer. And I said, I don't want to write a book about cancer, but I need some way to frame this story that gives it some kind of arc because mm -hmm. really my motivation is to say, there's a way to be a great father to a girl in the world. And mm -hmm. I know because I had it and I want to put it on paper. I want to put it on paper at 90% for him. I just want to hand it to him and say, this is what it has been like to be your kid. 10% because my husband is the father of two girls and I want him to be as great a dad to them as I had. Mm -hmm. And and that was really the incentive. Hmm. And that's the truth. But you know the... And it's not nearly as charming as saying, oh, I, I, I wanted to help other people who had cancer, dot, dot, dot. Like that wasn't my incentive. I knew it would, I... which is, it's like a positive externality as they say in business school. But but that wasn't the point. But you know, in some ways, the the truth that you just articulated is actually uh, 
I think more beautiful than the one that I think I was expecting. Uh, and the one that you kind of just said, blah, 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 too. Because one of the things that I think people often assume is that honesty and vulnerability are very one-dimensional looking. Like vulnerability must mean that it's incredibly difficult to do. But in some in some cases, like in your case, the way that you articulated that, that it it was actually uh, uh, almost, it sounded like an exercise in gratitude in some ways, is that it gave you an excuse to both build a career, but also to legitimately be grateful to your father. Mm-hmm. And I think that in 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 the public world, we don't give enough credit to the average reader or voter or American to be smart enough to sniff through inauthentic truth. And I bet that when they hear that, they're like, oh my God, now I actually want to read that book. Well, you know, when I think about it, I think it's like I, not only did I want to honor him and like say these things to him and relive these moments in our life together, but also I wanted to create a ride that we could go on. So Mm -hmm. together. So both my brothers are great athletes. That's a ride that a parent can go on. You can go to every game and you can sit in the stands and you can talk about the season and you can talk about the shot and you can talk about the ref. And, you know, like it gives you a lot of fodder and it gives you an experience to have together for years and years and years. And I didn't have anything like that to offer. You know, I didn't have a way for my dad to participate in my life because I was deeply unathletic and I was like a kid who made collages out of old magazines. Like that's Mm -hmm. what, like, that's what I gave him to cheer for was like, love you there. Look at that. I love that collage. Did you, you were a a quirky, you're a quirky youth. I, yeah, I just, (laughs) I didn't, I did, I didn't get good grades. I didn't go to a great college. Like I, I, there's just nothing. And and he, he didn't really need anything, to be honest. I mean, what he used to say to me that was this highest compliment is, I love your company. So it wasn't like, wow, you amaze me because dot, dot, dot. It was just like, I love your company. Come on, Levy, go with me to the dry cleaner. You know, I love your company. Hmm. Or you're a great conversationalist. He would say, you're a great conversationalist. And I was like, I love that word. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. Like, what a great thing to be in the world. So anyway, but I did, I created this boat that we took a ride on and it was such a fun adventure. I mean, we went to like Book Expo America, which is like the big behind the scenes book conference in New York City at the Javits Center. We signed books after readings. He came to New York to see me do my thing. He came to Virginia. Like it was just so much fun. We were together when the offers were coming in, like when the book was being purchased and we got an offer on Wednesday, then we got another offer on Thursday, then on Friday we got this offer. And, you know, I just would open my flip phone and he would hear my agent read the offer over the phone. And then we he would say, love me, God, it's just incredible. So, you know, that's that was the other motive was to have this shared experience. A shared experience that I, I bet made your father incredibly proud. Um, he was already proud. Yeah, like that's the thing about him is you didn't yeah. really need to like do a perfect cartwheel to get him to flip out. So there isn't really a, a, a smooth way or like a smart way to ask this question, but where my mind immediately goes as you tell the story of your father is how did you then 
overcome the loss? Um, or how did you navigate mm. that? I cried so much. I cried so much. For like six months, I cried multiple times a week. And when I cried, I cried my eyes out. I wrote a lot. You know, I did what people do. I did the same things that everybody else does. I walked with friends. I talked about him a lot. I mean, it was it was so fair. Like, he lived a long, wonderful life. We had the best goodbye you could ever have. We were alone together in the room. He hadn't said a word in 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I said, finally, well, finally, my Aunt Mary sent me this text and said, did you tell him he can go? And I said, no, but my mom did. And she said, it has to be you. Hmm. So I said it and like, right then, with like the syllables still floating in the air, just. Hmm. So that's a pretty, it's a pretty exquisite gift. And I just, I mean, we just had the best ending you could have, not just that day, but the, the weeks before that, we just had so much time when we knew what was happening. And like one time I said, you know, he just said, I love you all the time, like a million times. But I remember like kissing his head in bed and saying, I love you so much. And he said, I know I can feel it. And it's marvelous. Hmm. And I was like, well, then we're good. You can feel it. And it's marvelous. So that's like, you know, I mean, if I get that moment with my girls, that's be the happiest person ever. It's mm. all you want, you know, is that like clean it was like a note, like passing in the, in the air between us, like a perfect high C or I don't know what, I don't know anything about music, but you know, like that moment when you're listening to someone sing and they're just, it's like the most pure, clean transmission. It was like that. Well, I'm really happy that um, we got that moment. I'm also really happy that Duncan can't speak because he has to just sit there in silence mm -hmm. and and and, uh, and and sort of feel that. And and you know, it's um, as you sort of share that experience. I I I think about actually my grandfather, uh, who basically was was the the person that raised me for the first. Six, you know, four to five years of my life. And when he had passed away a year and a half ago, he lived in India. And so essentially, I didn't, I, I, I never really got to see him while he was passing, but we got to FaceTime. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's so interesting to, to hear you share your story, because I remember when I was FaceTiming my grandfather, and we were, we were sharing sort of you know, uh, I was hearing his sort of last breaths, you know, and mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can kind of sense it. Yeah. And you're telling them that you care about them and you deeply appreciate them. And I just remember this like very warm hug, you know, this embrace, this, this, and, and just when you shared, you know, your father saying that I can tell that you love, you love me. I can feel it like that, that experience in and of itself, like forget all the stuff that's happening in the world right now. Forget, you know, what's going on at my house. The fact that I'm gonna have to go pick up coffee after this and go to the Apple store in Nashua, New Hampshire. It just, it stopped everything. And it made me be here with you in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's that, that's really cool. That's really cool. 
love and be loved. That's that's the project yeah. of our existence. Well, there's no real easy transition out of this one. Um, so so I will hard transition. <laughs> okay, pivot. We're taking a pivot, people. Come with us. We're taking a pivot. Come with us. Be with us. Um, in, in sort of the the little bit of time we've got left. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think about I don't know. What do you think about the country? What do you think about <laughs> is this like if we were if we were on a date? You know, it's interesting. If we're on a date, I'm like, hmm. So we got this really deep section, and so uh, yeah. What do you think about the country, Kelly? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. My father died eight years ago, and he was a Republican, and he really disliked Hillary Clinton. And I don't know what would happen. I mean, I, I'm glad that we were spared that, and I feel for people who are at odds with their parents over politics like that's that the, these two things are running concurrently all the time like we're the simultaneity is real like there's the deepest real. things are passing between people and also these hmm. more superficial things more policy related things are also like did y'all disagree did y'all disagree on politics we did but we never talked about it, you never ever. About it. Mm -hmm. was that intentional or you just like didn't really care there there are more important life things love both. things to talk about i mean both i wouldn't he wouldn't have he wouldn't have ever tried to convince me of anything and i wouldn't have tried to convince him hmm. and also we were excited to talk about the stuff we like to talk about you know i want to i want to really quickly ask you about this feeling so you never felt like the need to convince him of anything um i, I feel mean, like maybe maybe with pro-choice pro-life but probably not because i really understood that his position was that from the moment of conception, you have uh, a God-given miraculous person that is growing in that body. And so if you really believe that, and he went to church every day, I mean, everything mm -hmm. about his life backed up that belief, then, I mean, you know, he was totally against capital punishment. So he had that consistency that people are always looking for, and it's kind of hard to find sometimes even within ourselves. But, you know, like I believed that he believed it with his whole heart. So then it's like, okay, great. Well, then we, why should, why should we debate when hmm. a person is a person? It's hmm. like, great. I, I believe that you are not, I believed that he had no ill intent hmm. and that he, he wasn't anti-woman and he wasn't anti-poverty and he wasn't, trying to control a whole population of people. Hmm. And fascinatingly, my mother, who is also raised Catholic and went to church and still to this day goes to church every day, she said, I'm actually pro-choice, but only because I am a conservative and I feel that the government should be small and should allow people to make choices for themselves, including what they do in the bedroom and with whom, and including what to do about an unwanted pregnancy. Hmm. And I thought that was kind of an amazing discovery. Yeah. But I wouldn't have even thought to ask. I wouldn't even think that that would be worth asking. I was so assumed that it would be because she believed it was life, that it was a human life. Hmm. So anyway, I, I and he wouldn't have tried to change my mind. 
I mean, but we loved mm-hmm. each other so much. When you love each other so much and you trust each other so much and you have so much goodness passing effortlessly between you, you're just not going to have those fights, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll tell you in, in some ways that that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And in some ways that also makes me a little pessimistic. And the reason why it makes me pessimistic is because one of the fundamental challenges I grapple with is like, you know, the reason why it makes me feel warm and fuzzy is I'm like, if everybody could feel that way about everybody, that would be amazing. You know, if everybody could feel like, you know, this person in this country that I that is not my father, but is some some other citizen, you know, has a, a, a real perspective and has a sense of belonging, that would be amazing. And the the pessimistic part of me says, well, not to make this all Silicon Valley, but how do you scale that feeling, you know, across people? How do you get... Yeah, um, and if that's what's required, this exquisite connection... That's tough. That, that, then it's hopeless. So much for the hopeful majority. No, no, no. Just, just, but, but what, what, what I think we both believe is that it is not required. It is not required that you have an exquisite connection. It could be as simple as just a skill set. Hmm. I mean, you you need like a, a some kind of desire to participate in the conversation, but it could come. It could be action first, feeling second. Like you mm. could just have a a skill set that you develop in people. That's like this is how you have a conversation where people are coming from two different places, and these are the goals of that conversation. It's not to change. It's just to hear, and it's like okay. And then once you're doing that, you know you should take these steps. Ask them how they came to that position. Like, show your work. Tell me mm. where the first time you realized that you believed that. Tell me what kinds of worries you have. What don't you understand about the position? Like, there's a set of questions you can just tuck in everybody's back pocket and say, here, take out this list. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can, there's a tactical approach that might yield the same outcome as the one that I had with my father, which was built on the back of this exquisite connection. I mean, it goes to even your book, Tell Me More, right? It's it's the way in which you phrase, the way in which you think. And when people are going to be hearing this conversation, it, it's going to be, we're all in the middle of the holidays. And so our conversation will be released, I guess, to the world. And when you're hearing this is, I think, the day right after Christmas. And I know that all of us are going to be in our families. All of us are going to be talking to each other. There's going to be uh, great conversations. There's also going to be anxious conversations. And you asked me this question, but I want to ask you this question. And you touched on this a little bit, but what is your advice to people to have those difficult conversations? What are some tactics that people can develop where you don't have to feel benevolence towards somebody and yet you can show up in a benevolent and understanding manner? I mean, one thought I have a lot with myself going into different situations is what's my agenda? Like, who am I serving in this conversation? And so, and it's a huge decision. Like either I'm serving myself, which is I need you to hear me. I need to get these thoughts out. And if I don't get to say this, I'm going to blow. Or it's like, oh, I'm serving you. So it's easy for me with older people. Cause it's like, they're, they're like going to live for five more years. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's interesting. You're, serving you're not them. here to, you're not here to edit them. You're not here to change their mind. Just you're here to listen to them. You're here to make them feel good. You're here to make their day better. You're here to, so that tomorrow when they chat with their friend, they say, oh, it's such a wonderful dinner. It was so fun. You know, like have a vision for what you hope the outcome of the experience will be 
for whomever matters most to you in that circumstance. So if I'm going to see my mom, who's a Republican, and I'm going to see my brothers, who are Republicans, and I'm a Democrat, the person I'm serving in my mind is my mom. So I'm not going to talk to her about politics and I'm not going to talk to either of them about politics because it would upset her to see her children at odds. And I know what I'm doing there. I know that I'm there giving her a great day. That's my goal. That's actually a really simple. I haven't heard that before, believe it or not, which is like, who are you serving in this conversation? Like like a perfect example of it is is in our sort of two hours, right? The first hour you're asking me questions. And so in that way, in a way, I'm supposed to be much more engaged in trying to, you know, essentially articulate what it is that I'm doing. And then the second hour, uh, I'm serving you in the sense of trying to create a platform for your story and asking questions. Uh, but in our daily lives, I, I feel like one of the challenges is that that requires a sense of humility. It almost requires a sense of like, okay, I'm going to step out of this because it's not about what I think when it comes to my mom. It's about making her feel loved, cared for, whatever the case might be. How do you inculcate that? Yeah, I mean, you have to... Um... Gosh, only if my sister could hear this. Well, I mean, one thing I'm thinking is... For my mom or my brother. You are, if you feel a sense of urgency, that you have not been heard, that you've been rolled, that you have been outshouted, then you're probably not going to be able to show up agendaless. And I feel I get to say what I think a lot. Like I'm satisfied that I'm, I have enough opportunity to express myself that I don't need to express it a week from now at the dinner table, Hmm. you know? But if you're a person that's like nobody's listening to you anywhere, then you're going to keep trying to get heard. And maybe that's the macro situation we're in. Maybe there's a whole population of people who's like, nobody listens to me. My boss doesn't listen to me. My wife and kids don't listen to me. My local community doesn't listen to me when I say we need to repave this road or we need to fix the side of the schoolyard, or we need to get these potholes filled in, you know, like nobody's listening to me. So wherever I go, I am urgently trying to be heard. But my itch to be heard has been scratched Mm because it gets scratched all week long because I'm married to a person who listens to me. My children sometimes occasionally listen to me. I have a podcast, so I get listened to in kind of a literal sense by lots of people. And so I don't have this um, fire inside of me to be understood because I sort of feel a, a blanket sense of like being understood. So I don't need to use the dinner table as a platform for being heard because I've checked the box already. How do you answer the question that some people should just not be heard? Because they create harm it, in the world. It, it, well, I mean... It 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 won't it won't put out the fire. I mean, it's not really an option if you if you're thinking about the future. So it's like, sure, I guess maybe. I I, I mean, and they're words, they're just words. So go ahead and say them. 
And the fact is that I think everybody knows from their own personal experiences over the course of a lifetime where this is shown to them over and over and over again, that the thought is more powerful than the statement. So as soon as you say the thing, the thing itself has less power. So to block people from saying it is to give it more power, is to keep it as like this very explosive fuel that's churning within them. And it, 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 we're going to have to give people outlets to say the things. But we can do it with the comfort and knowledge that in most cases, it reduces the power of those things. I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe like, I maybe think there's I'm someone sure. listening who's like, what are you smoking, lady? Like, that's insane. People mm -hmm. stir people up and draw people to their crazy points of view and they start riots. Like, I don't know. I don't really, I don't, I haven't thought about it enough to really have like a super strong opinion. Hmm. I was just trying to apply like my own experience of like something becoming dangerously powerful when it's not expressed and less powerful when it is. And this, this thing that Monica Guzman said that I wrote down that I thought was really interesting might be relevant here, which is mm -hmm. whoever is underrepresented in your life will be overrepresented in your imagination, which is sort of a similar idea, which is if you're not actually saying the things and interacting with the people, they become like enormous. And the bigger they become in your imagination, the more dangerous they are. Mm -hmm. So to float it might be to get feedback, which might be to have dialogue. And dialogue's probably the only treatment for this particular disease. Yeah, I I, I had, I think, Monica and I were on, um, we had a conversation, I think it was the second episode of the, of the show. And when she had brought up that sentiment, I think it goes exactly to what it is that you've been saying, which is that if you give people the space to express, the worst case that happens is they say a bunch of things. Uh, but the best thing that happens is they actually, in some ways, might stop saying those things in the future because they've gotten it off their chest. Yes, or they hear it. I mean, it's, it's, it. it's, a, it's a very different, like the, the things that you would say in your head are much more um, wicked and monochromatic than the things you would actually articulate to another person. And so, and if you were to let it out as ugly as it is phrased in your mind, you might hear it for yourself and say, oh, I'm overstating it. You know, that's, that's actually probably going too far. But if you just keep it in your head, you can just keep polishing it and polishing it. Like I recently had this experience where I'd done something for someone and they did not thank me. And in my mind, I kept thinking, I made this exquisite, extraordinary sacrifice, and he's not going to say thank you. Mm. And then I thought, if you keep saying that to yourself, you're going to get madder and madder and madder. And also, like, is it true? Did you make an extraordinary sacrifice for him? Or was it a little more complicated than that? 
was it partially for her too and partially for me too and so like be careful the storylines you sell to yourself and be careful the the phrasings in your mind that you like polish like i'm a word person you know so i can get hooked on a headline that i write myself in my mind about what went down hmm. and that is dangerous that is working yourself up into something and not testing it against reality and so maybe the another thing that happens when we allow people to say things is that it gets tested by reality hmm. man i can relate to um the sentiment that when you hold something in your head and don't externalize it, it becomes so big and so big. And I'm an anxious mind. And so it becomes even bigger and it becomes a ball of anxiety. And so speaking of anxiety, we're we're now five minutes over your allotted time. Oh, and, I gotta go and, get a sandwich. And, and 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 this is like the time where I start going, Kelly's gonna get really mad at me because I kept her over, kept her over. And I can just keep asking you questions and questions because I really have I wouldn't say I've heard a lot of new things. But what I will say is I've heard a lot of different ways to say things that are much more crisper than the way that I've said them. And one of those is this notion that you show up in a conversation and think about who you serve. Like, I think that is so powerful. That is such an interesting frame. And so I want to end with this. This is the question that I ask everybody when we were thinking about creating this podcast. I was like, it sounds like a podcast thing to do to set up a question at the end that you ask everybody. So we're going to do it. And the title, obviously, of the show is The Hopeful Majority. And the big thing about hope that I found is that having the answer to the question why, having a sense of purpose, um, at least has helped me a lot. And I have to ask you, like, what is your why? What is the answer to that question for you? Stagnation is boring. Because I think it would be long, boring days if you locked into your positions and sat there for 40 years on them, you know? So like growth is fun. Novelty is fun. Like, like I'm almost in it to have a better day because lives are just amalgamations of days or accumulation of days. So yeah, I think stagnation is, um, is just boring. Like imagine if you just, locked in and they sort of said same things to each other day in and day out. Like I get really irritated with Edward when he repeats a story and he repeat, like, I'm going to say 40% of everything he says to me, he's told me before. <laughs> and I'm always saying like, I know, I know you, you told me that. And then when we're having a heart to heart, I'll say, I don't mean to be a dick about it. It's just that I feel like I don't want to pretend with you. So if you're telling me something for the third time and I'm just pretending like, uh-huh, no, I know, yeah, that's interesting. Then I feel like there's this falseness in our rapport that's like, that's the last place on earth I want fal falseness. Like I want this thing that we're doing to be as like real and alive as possible. So if we're gonna stagnate and just start telling each other stuff we've told each other 17 times before, like what's the point? Huh. No way. Not signing up for that ever. Stagnation is boring. Um, Kelly Corgan, thank you so much for coming in the hopeful majority. And, and importantly, 
uh, I would just say that the the way in which you talk about these issues, the way in which you tell your stories, um, I could sit here and just keep listening. And I, I'm not just saying that. Trust me. There's some guests where we're like, all right, we're at the 50 minute mark. It's time to tell them how great they are. And uh, <laughs> let's wrap up. So I just want you to know that I, I deeply appreciate the conversation. And we didn't talk about politics. In fact, I love that because the conversation that I think you and I just had is is only a conversation that you and I can have. Yeah, uh, which is, sure. I think are, are special conversations. Yeah. Well, I love what you do and I'm happy to be a part of it. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much to Kelly for joining. As you probably saw throughout that conversation, that was a heavy one. But it was a heavy conversation in that it was really enlightening. And I'm just so incredibly grateful to Kelly's time for you to listen. Importantly, I don't take it for granted at all because you and I are building a hopeful majority of people that believe in nuance, that want to fight outrage, that want to live in a world where we have these complex conversations. And I hope that that conversation gave you something to start off the new year on the right foot, to start off the new year with maybe a little bit more curiosity, maybe a little bit more of a desire to challenge in an understanding way, maybe in a way in which we can actually hold each other's differences. So I'm so grateful to you for being here. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Wishing you an amazing new year. The hopeful majority is growing. It's building. You and I together will see you in 2024. Thank you and take care, everybody. 